Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. We're happy to have you and know that you are welcome here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, abortion is healthcare, and black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available. The link is in the show notes. There are also links to various institutions fighting to ensure the right to abortion, and I strongly advocate supporting them in any way you can. Last week, I said that this week I would hopefully have my old setup back and I would be able to get back to normal. Well, now we know that that was a mistaken assumption. This is the second time in a row the computer shop told me it would be a two-week turnaround and it's been longer, so probably not going to believe that line again. Anyway, we will get back to normal, or what passes for normal, around this fly-by-night operation, hopefully soon. Last thing before getting into the story, I realized, like, three days ago that May has five Mondays, which was a huge relief to my mind, because I've been recording a longer episode than I particularly like. I don't have much patience when it comes to editing, and the less I have to do, the better, which, with my mushmouth way of speaking, is usually quite a bit. Anyway, with the revelation that there will be an extra Monday... I was able to scale back on how much I had to record this week, which was a definite relief to my mind. Anyway, this is the bit of the story where there's two locations that sound almost exactly alike except for the inclusion of one letter. Don't blame me. I didn't write it. By noon, Carter reached the Jasper Terraces of Kieran, which sloped down to the river's edge, and bear that temple of loveliness wherein the king of Ilakvad comes from his far realm on the Twilight Sea, once a year in a golden palanquin, to pray to the god of Ukranos, who sang to him in youth when he dwelt in a cottage by its banks. All of Jasper is that temple, and covering an acre of ground with its walls and courts, its seven-pinnacled towers, and its inner shrine where the river enters through hidden channels, and the gods sing softly in the moonlight. Many times the moon hears strange music as it shines on those courts and terraces and pinnacles, but whether that music be the song of the god or the chant of the cryptical priests, none but the king of Elekvad may say, for only he has entered the temple or seen the priests. Now, in the drowsiness of day, that carven and delicate fane was silent, and Carter heard only the murmur of the great stream and the hum of the birds and bees as he walked onward under an enchanted sun. All that afternoon, the pilgrim wandered on through perfumed meadows, and in the lee of gentle riverward hills, bearing peaceful thatched cottages and the shrines of amiable gods carven from jasper or chrysoberyl. Sometimes he walked close to the bank of Ukranos and whistled to the sprightly and iridescent fish of that crystal stream, and at other times he paused amidst the whispering rushes and gazed at the great dark wood on the farther side, whose trees came down clear to the water's edge. In former dreams he had seen quaint, lumbering buopoths come shyly out of that wood to drink, but now he could not glimpse any. Once in a while he paused to watch a carnivorous fish catch a fishing bird, which it lured into the water by showing its tempting scales in the sun, and grasped by the beak with its enormous mouth as the winged hunter sought to dart down upon it. Toward evening he mounted a low grassy rise and saw before him flaming in the sunset the thousand gilded spires of Thrawn. Lofty beyond belief are the alabaster walls of that incredible city, sloping inward toward the top and wrought in one solid piece by what means no man knows, for they are more ancient than memory. 
yet lofty as they are with their hundred gates and two hundred turrets, the clustered towers within, all white beneath their golden spires, are loftier still, so that men on the plain around see them soaring into the sky, sometimes shining clear, sometimes caught at the top in tangles of cloud and mist, and sometimes clouded lower down with their utmost pinnacles blazing free above the vapors. And where Thrawn's gates open on the river are great wharves of marble, with ornate galleons of fragrant cedar and calamander riding gently at anchor, and strange bearded sailors sitting on casks and bales with the hieroglyphs of far places. Landward beyond the walls lies the farm country, where small white cottages dream between little hills, and narrow roads with many stone bridges wind gracefully among streams and gardens. Down through this verdant land Carter walked at evening, and saw twilight float up from the river to the marvelous golden spires of Thrawn. And just at the hour of dusk, he came to the southern gate, and was stopped by a red-robed sentry till he had told three dreams beyond belief, and proved himself a dreamer worthy to walk up Thrawn's steep, mysterious streets, and linger in bazaars where the wares of the ornate galleons were sold. Then into that incredible city he walked, through a wall so thick that the gate was a tunnel, and thereafter amidst curved and undulant ways winding deep and narrow between the heavenward towers. Lights shone through grated and balconied windows, and the sound of lutes and pipes stole timid from inner courts where marble fountains bubbled. Carter knew his way, and edged down through darker streets to the river, where at an old sea tavern he found the captains and seamen he had known in myriad other dreams. There he bought his passage to Salophaeus on a great green galleon, and there he stopped for the night after speaking gravely to the venerable cat of that inn, who blinked dozing before an enormous hearth and dreamed of old wars and forgotten gods. In the morning, Carter boarded the galleon bound for Salophaeus and sat in the prow as the ropes were cast off and the long sail down to the Serenarian Sea began. For many leagues, the banks were much as they were above Thron, with now and then a curious temple rising on the farther hills toward the right and a drowsy village on the shore with steep red roofs and nets spread in the sun. Mindful of his search, Carter questioned all the mariners closely about those whom they had met in the taverns of Salophaeus, asking the names and ways of the strange men with long, narrow eyes, long-lobed ears, thin noses, and pointed chins who came in dark ships from the north and traded onyx for the carved jade and spun gold and little red singing birds of Salophaeus. Of these men the sailors knew not much, save that they talked but seldom and spread a kind of awe about them. Their land, very far away, was called Inganic, and not many people cared to go thither because it was a cold twilight land and said to be close to unpleasant Lang. Although high, impassable mountains towered on the side where Lang was thought to lie, so that none might say whether this evil plateau with its horrible stone villages and unmentionable monastery were really there, or whether the rumor were only a fear that timid people felt in the night when those formidable barrier peaks loomed black against a rising moon. Certainly men reached Lang from very different oceans. Of other boundaries of Inganic, those sailors had no notion, nor had they heard of the cold waste and unknown Kadath, save from vague, unplaced report and of the marvelous sunset city which Carter sought, they knew nothing at all. So the traveler asked no more of far things, but bided his time till he might talk with those strange men from cold and twilight and Gannick, 
who are the seeds of such gods as carve their features on in granite. Late in the day, the galleon reached those bends of the river which traversed the perfumed jungles of Kled. Here, Carter wished he might disembark, for in those tropic tangles sleep wondrous palaces of ivory, lone and unbroken, where once dwelt fabulous monarchs of a land whose name is forgotten. Spells of the Elder Ones keep those places unharmed and undecayed, for it is written that there may one day be need of them again. And elephant caravans have glimpsed them from afar by moonlight, though none dares approach them closely because of the guardians to which their wholeness is due. But the ship swept on, and dusk hushed the hum of the day, and the first stars above blinked answers to the early fireflies on the banks as that jungle fell far behind, leaving only its fragrance as a memory that it had been. And all through the night, that galleon floated on past mysteries unseen and unsuspected. Once a lookout reported fires on the hills to the east, but the sleepy captain said that they had better not be looked at too much since it was highly uncertain just who or what had lit them. In the morning, the river had broadened out greatly, and Carter saw by the houses along the banks that they were close to the vast trading city of Hlaneth on the Serenarian Sea. Here, the walls are of rugged granite, and the houses peakedly fantastic with beamed and plastered gables. The men of Hlaneth are more like those of the waking world than any others in Dreamland, so that the city is not sought except for barter, but is prized for the solid work of its artisans. The wharves of Hlaneth are of oak, and there the galleon made fast while the captain traded in the taverns. Carter also went ashore and looked curiously upon the rutted streets where wooden ox carts lumbered, and feverish merchants cried their wares vacuously in the bazaars. The sea taverns were all close to the wharves on cobbled lanes, salt with the spray of high tides, and seemed exceedingly ancient with their low, black-beamed ceilings and casements of greenish bullseye panes. Ancient sailors in those taverns talked much of distant ports and told many stories of the curious men from Twilight and Gannick, but had little to add to what the seamen of the galleon had told. Then, at last, after much unloading and loading, the ship set sail once more over the sunset sea, and the high walls and gables of Hlaneth grew less as the last golden light of day lent them a wonder and beauty beyond any that men had given them. Two nights and two days the galleon sailed over the Serenarian Sea, sighting no land and speaking but one other vessel. Then, near sunset of the second day, there loomed up ahead the snowy peak of Aeron, with its ginkgo trees swaying on the lower slopes, and Carter knew that they were come to the land of Uth-Nargai and the marvelous city of Selephaeus. Swiftly there came into sight the glittering minarets of that fabulous town, and the untarnished marble walls with their bronze statues, and the great stone bridge where Naraxa joins the sea. Then rose the green gentle hills behind the town, with their groves and gardens of asphodels, and the small shrines and cottages upon them, and far in the background the purple ridge of the Tenarians, potent and mystical, behind which lay forbidden ways into the waking world and toward other regions of dream." The harbor was full of painted galleys, some of which were from the marble-clouded city of Seranian that lies in ethereal space beyond where the sea meets the sky, and some of which were from more substantial ports on the oceans of dreamland. Among these, the steersman threaded his way up to the spice-fragrant wharves, where the galleon made fast in the dusk as the city's million lights began to twinkle out over the water. 
ever new seemed this deathless city of vision, for here time has no power to tarnish or destroy. As it has always been is still the turquoise temple of Nath-Horthath, and the eighty orchid-wreathed priests are the same who builded it ten thousand years ago. Shining still is the bronze of the great gates, nor are the onyx pavements ever worn or broken, and the great bronze statues on the walls look down on merchants and camel drivers older than fable, yet without one gray hair in their forked beards. Carter did not at once seek out the temple or the palace or the citadel, but stayed by the seaward wall among traders and sailors, and when it was too late for rumors and legends, he sought out an ancient tavern he knew well, and rested with dreams of the gods on unknown Kadath whom he sought. The next day, he searched all along the quays for some of the strange mariners of Inganic, but was told that none were now in port, their galley not being due from the north for full two weeks. He found, however, one Thorabonian sailor who had been to Inganic and who had worked in the onyx quarries of that twilight place. And this sailor said there was certainly a desert to the north of the peopled region, which everybody seemed to fear and shun. The Thorabonian opined that this desert led around the utmost rim of impassable peaks into Lang's horrible plateau, and that this was why men feared it, though he admitted there were other vague tales of evil presences and nameless sentinels. Whether or not this could be the fabled waste wherein unknown Kadath stands he did not know, but it seemed unlikely that those presences and sentinels, if indeed they truly existed, were stationed for naught. On the following day, Carter walked up the street of the pillars to the turquoise temple and talked with the high priest. Though Nath-Horthoth is chiefly worshipped in Celepheus, all the great ones are mentioned in diurnal prayers, and the priest was reasonably versed in their moods. Like Atal in distant Ulthar, he strongly advised against any attempt to see them, declaring that they are testy and capricious, and subject to strange protection from the mindless other gods from outside, whose soul and messenger is the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep. Their jealous hiding of the marvelous sunset city showed clearly that they did not wish Carter to reach it, and it was doubtful how they would regard a guest whose object was to see them and plead before them. No man had ever found Kadath in the past, and it might be just as well if none ever found it in the future. Such rumors, as were told about that onyx castle of the Great Ones, were not by any means reassuring. Having thanked the orchid-crowned high priest, Carter left the temple and sought the bazaar of the sheep butchers, where the old chief of Salophaeus's cats dwelt sleek and contented. That gray and dignified being was sunning himself on the onyx pavement and extended a languid paw as his collar approached. But when Carter repeated the passwords and introductions furnished him by the old cat general of Ulthar, the furry patriarch became very cordial and communicative, and told much of the secret lord known to cats on the seaward slopes of Uth Nargai. Best of all, he repeated several things told him furtively by the timid waterfront cats of Celepheus about the men of Inganic, on whose dark ships no cat will go. It seems that these men have an aura not of earth about them, though that is not the reason why no cat will sail on their ships. The reason for this is that Inganic holds shadows which no cat can endure, so that in all that cold twilight realm there is never a cheering purr or homely mew. Whether it be because of things wafted over the impossible peaks from hypothetical Lang, 
or because of things filtering down from the chilly desert to the north, none may say, but it remains a fact that in that far land there broods a hint of outer space which cats do not like, and to which they are more sensitive than men. Therefore they will not go on the dark ships that seek the basalt keys of Inganic. The old chief of the cats also told him where to find his friend, King Kuranis, who in Carter's latter dreams had reigned alternately in the rose-crystal palace of the Seventy Delights at Celepheus and in the turreted cloud castle of sky-floating Seranian. It seems that he could no more find content in those places, but had formed a mighty longing for the English cliffs and downlands of his boyhood, where in little dreaming villages England's old songs hover at evening behind lattice windows and where grey church towers peep lovely through the verdure of distant valleys. He could not go back to these things in the waking world because his body was dead, but he had done the next best thing and dreamed a small tract of such countryside in the region east of the city, where meadows rolled gracefully up from the sea cliffs to the foot of the Tenarian hills. There he dwelt in a grey gothic manor house of stone looking on the sea and tried to think it was ancient Trevor Towers where he was born and where thirteen generations of his forefathers had first seen the light. And on the coast nearby he had built a little Cornish fishing village with steep cobbled ways, settling therein such people as had the most English faces, and seeking ever to teach them the dear-remembered accents of old Cornwall fishers. And in a valley not far off he had reared a great Norman abbey, whose tower he could see from his window, placing around it in the churchyard grey stones with the names of his ancestors carved thereon, and with a moss somewhat like old England's moss. For though Kuranis was a monarch in the land of dreams, with all imagined pomps and marvels, splendors and beauties, ecstasies and delights, novelties and excitements at his command, he would gladly have resigned forever the whole of his power and luxury and freedom for one blessed day as a simple boy in that pure and quiet England, that ancient, beloved England which had molded his being and of which he must always be immutably a part. So when Carter bade that old grey chief of the cats adieu, he did not seek the terraced palace of Rose Crystal, but walked out the eastern gate and across the daisied fields towards a peaked gable which he glimpsed through the oaks of a park sloping up to the sea cliffs. And in time he came to a great hedge and a gate with a little brick lodge, and when he rang the bell, there hobbled to admit him no robed and anointed lackey of the palace, but a small, stubbly old man in a smock who spoke as best he could in the quaint tones of far Cornwall. And Carter walked up the shady path between trees as near as possible to England's trees, and climbed the terraces among gardens set out in Queen Anne's time. At the door, flanked by stone cats in the old way, he was met by a whiskered butler in suitable livery, and was presently taken to the library where Kuranis, lord of Uthnargai and the sky around Seranian, sat pensive in a chair by the window, looking on his little seacoast village, and wishing that his old nurse would come in and scold him because he was not ready for that hateful lawn party at the vicar's, with the carriage waiting and his mother nearly out of patience. Kuranis, clad in a dressing gown of the sort favored by London tailors in his youth, rose eagerly to meet his guest for the sight of an Anglo-Saxon from the waking world was very dear to him, even if it was a Saxon from Boston, Massachusetts, instead of from Cornwall, and for long they talked of old times, having much to say because both were old dreamers and well-versed in the wonders of incredible places. 
Kuranis, indeed, had been out beyond the stars in the ultimate void, and was said to be the only one who had ever returned sane from such a voyage. At length, Carter brought up the subject of his quest, and asked of his hosts those questions he had asked of so many others. Kuranis did not know where Kadath was, or the marvelous Sunset City, but he did know that the Great Ones were very dangerous creatures to seek out, and that the other gods had strange ways of protecting them from impertinent curiosity. He had learned much of the other gods in distant parts of space, especially in that region where form does not exist, and colored gases study the innermost secrets. The violet gas Syngak had told him terrible things of the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep and had warned him never to approach the central void where the demon sultan Azathoth gnaws hungrily in the dark. Altogether, it was not well to meddle with the Elder Ones, and if they persistently denied all access to the marvelous Sunset City, it were better not to seek that city. Kuranis furthermore doubted whether his guest would profit aught by coming to the city even were he to gain it. He himself had dreamed and yearned long years for lovely Salafaeus and the land of Uthnargai, and for the freedom and color and high experience of life devoid of its chains, conventions, and stupidities. But now that he was come into that city and that land and was the king thereof, he found the freedom and the vividness all too soon worn out, and monotonous for want of linkage with anything firm in his feelings and memories. He was a king in Uthnargai, but found no meaning therein, and drooped always for the old familiar things of England that had shaped his youth. All his kingdom would he give for the sound of Cornish church bells over the downs, and all the thousand minarets of Salafaeus for the steep, homely roofs of the village near his home. So he told his guests that the unknown sunset city might not hold quite the content he sought, and that perhaps it had better remain a glorious and half-remembered dream. For he had visited Carter often in the old waking days, and knew well the lovely New England slopes that had given him birth. At the last, he was very certain, the seeker would long only for the early remembered scenes, the glow of Beacon Hill at evening, the tall steeples and winding hill streets of quaint Kingsport, the hoary gambrel roofs of ancient and witch-haunted Arkham, and the blessed miles of meads and valleys where stone walls rambled and white farmhouse gables peeped out from bowers of verdure. These things he told Randolph Carter, but still the seeker held to his purpose, and in the end they parted each with his own conviction, and Carter went back through the bronze gate into Salafaeus and down the street of the pillars to the old seawall where he talked more with the mariners of far parts and waited for the dark ship from cold and twilight in Gannick, whose strange-faced sailors and onyx traders had in them the blood of the Great Ones. One starlight evening, when the pharaoh shone splendid over the harbor, the longed-for ship put in, and strange-faced sailors and traders appeared one by one and group by group in the ancient taverns along the seawall. It was very exciting to see again those living faces so like the godlike features on in Granik, but Carter did not hasten to speak with the silent seamen. He did not know how much of pride and secrecy and dim supernal memory might fill those children of the Great Ones, and was sure it would not be wise to tell them of his quest or ask too closely of that cold desert stretching north of their twilight land. They talked little with the other folks in those ancient sea taverns, 
but would gather in groups in remote corners and sing among themselves the haunting airs of unknown places or chant long tales to one another in accents alien to the rest of dreamland. And so rare and moving were those airs and tales that one might guess their wonders from the faces of those who listened, even though the words came to common ears only as strange cadence and obscure melody. For a week the strange seamen lingered in the taverns and traded in the bazaars of Salafaeus, and before they sailed Carter had taken passage on their dark ship, telling them that he was an old onyx miner and wishful to work in their quarries. That ship was very lovely and cunningly wrought, being of teak wood with ebony fittings and traceries of gold, and the cabin in which the traveler lodged had hangings of silk and velvet. One morning, at the turn of the tide, the sails were raised and the anchor lifted, and as Carter stood on the high stern, he saw the sunrise blazing walls and bronze statues and golden minarets of ageless Celepheus sink into the distance and the snowy peak of Mount Aeron grows smaller and smaller. By noon there was nothing in sight save the gentle blue of the Serenarian Sea, with one painted galley afar off, bound for that cloud-hung realm of Serenian where the sea meets the sky. And night came with gorgeous stars, and the dark ship steered for Charles Wayne and the little bear as they swung slowly round the pole and the sailors sang strange songs of unknown places, and then stole off one by one to the forecastle, while the wistful watchers murmured old chants and leaned over the rail to glimpse the luminous fish playing in bowers beneath the sea. Carter went to sleep at midnight and rose in the glow of a young morning, marking that the sun seemed further south than was its wont, and all through that second day he made progress in knowing the men of the ship getting them little by little to talk of their cold twilight land, of their exquisite onyx city, and of their fear of the high and impassable peaks beyond which Lang was said to be. They told him how sorry they were that no cats would stay in the land of Inganic, and how they thought the hidden nearness of Lang was to blame for it. Only of the stony desert to the north they would not talk. There was something disquieting about that desert and it was thought expedient not to admit its existence. On later days they talked of the quarries in which Carter said he was going to work. There were many of them, for all the city of Inganic was built of onyx, whilst great polished blocks of it were traded in Rhinar, Agrathan, and Salafaeus, and at home with the merchants of Thra, Ilarnic, and Cadetheron, for the beautiful wares of those fabulous ports. And far to the north, Almost in that cold desert whose existence the men of Inganic did not care to admit, there was an unused quarry greater than all the rest, from which had been hewn in forgotten times such prodigious lumps and blocks that the sight of their chiseled vacancies struck terror to all who beheld. Who had mined those incredible blocks, and whither they had been transported no man might say, but it was thought best not to trouble that quarry around which such inhuman memories might conceivably cling. So it was left all alone in the twilight, with only the raven and the rumored Shantok bird to brood on its immensities. When Carter heard of this quarry, he was moved to deep thought, for he knew from old tales that the Great One's castle atop unknown Kadath is of onyx. Each day the sun wheeled lower and lower in the sky, and the mists overhead grew thicker and thicker, 
and in two weeks there was not any sunlight at all, but only a weird gray twilight shining through a dome of eternal cloud by day and a cold starless phosphorescence from the underside of that cloud by night. On the twentieth day, a great jagged rock in the sea was sighted from afar, the first land glimpsed since Aaron's snowy peak had dwindled behind the ship. Carter asked the captain the name of that rock, but it was told that it had no name and had never been sought by any vessel because of the sounds that came from it at night. And when, after dark, a dull and ceaseless howling arose from that jagged granite place, the traveler was glad that no stop had been made and that the rock had no name. The seamen prayed and chanted till the noise was out of earshot, and Carter dreamed terrible dreams within dreams in the small hours. Two mornings after that, there loomed far ahead and to the east a line of great gray peaks whose tops were lost in the changeless clouds of that twilight world. And at the sight of them, the sailors sang glad songs, and some knelt down on the deck to pray so that Carter knew they were come to the land of Inganic and would soon be moored to the basalt keys of the great town bearing that land's name. Toward noon, a dark coastline appeared, and before three o'clock there stood out against the north the bulbous domes and fantastic spires of the onyx city. Rare and curious did that archaic city rise above its walls and keys, all of delicate black with scrolls, flutings, and arabesques of inlaid gold. Tall and many-windowed were the houses, and carved on every side with flowers and patterns whose dark symmetries dazzled the eye with a beauty more poignant than light. Some ended in swelling domes that tapered to a point, others in terraced pyramids whereon rose clustered minarets displaying every phase of strangeness and imagination. The walls were low and pierced by frequent gates, each under a great arch rising high above the general level and capped by the head of a god chiseled with that same skill displayed on the monstrous face on distant Ingranic. On a hill in the center rose a sixteen-angled tower, greater than all the rest, and bearing a high-pinnacled belfry resting on a flattened dome. This, the seamen said, was the temple of the Elder Ones, and was ruled by an old high priest, sad with inner secrets. At intervals, the clang of a strange bell shivered over the onyx city, answered each time by a peal of mystic music made up of horns, viols, and chanting voices and from a row of tripods on a gallery round the high dome of the temple there burst flares of flame at certain moments, for the priests and people of that city were wise in the primal mysteries and faithful in keeping the rhythms of the great ones as set forth in scrolls older than the Nicotic manuscripts. As the ship rode past the great basalt breakwater into the harbor, the lesser noises of the city grew manifest, and Carter saw the slaves, sailors, and merchants on the dock. The sailors and merchants were of the strange-faced race of the gods, but the slaves were squat, slant-eyed folk, said by rumor to have drifted somehow across or around the impassable peaks from valleys beyond Lang. The wharves reached wide outside the city wall and bore upon them all manner of merchandise from the galleys anchored there, while at one end were great piles of onyx both carved and uncarved, awaiting shipment to the far markets of Rhinar, Agrathan, and Salafaeus. It was not yet evening when the dark ship anchored beside a jutting key of stone 
and all the sailors and traders filed ashore and through the arched gate into the city. The streets of that city were paved with onyx, and some of them were wide and straight, whilst others were crooked and narrow. The houses near the water were lower than the rest, and bore above their curiously arched doorways certain signs of gold said to be in honor of the respective small gods that favored each. The captain of the ship took Carter to an old sea tavern where flocked the mariners of quaint countries, and promised that he would next day show him the wonders of the twilight city and lead him to the taverns of the onyx miners by the northern wall. An evening fell, and little bronze lamps were lighted, and the sailors in that tavern sang songs of remote places. But when from its high tower the great bell shivered over the city, and the peal of the horns and viols and voices rose cryptical in answer thereto, all ceased their songs or tales, and bowed silent till the last echo died away. For there is a wonder and a strangeness on the twilight city of Inganic, and men fear to be lax in its rites, lest a doom and a vengeance lurk unsuspectedly close. Far in the shadows of that tavern, Carter saw a squat form he did not like, for it was unmistakably that of the old slant-eyed merchant he had seen so long before in the taverns of Dilath Lean, who was reputed to trade with the horrible stone villages of Lang, which no healthy folk visit, and whose evil fires are seen at night from afar, and even to have dealt with that high priest not to be described, which wears a yellow silken mask over its face, and dwells all alone in a prehistoric stone monastery. This man had seemed to show a queer gleam of knowing when Carter asked the traders of Dilathleen about the cold waste and Kadath, and somehow his presence in dark and haunted Inganic, so close to the wonders of the north, was not a reassuring thing. He slipped wholly out of sight before Carter could speak to him, and sailors later said that he had come with a yak caravan from some point not well determined, bearing the colossal and rich-flavored eggs of the rumored Shantak bird to trade for the dexterous jade goblets that merchants brought forth from Ilarnik. On the following morning, the ship captain led Carter through the onyx streets of Inganic, dark under the twilight sky. The inlaid doors and figured house fronts, carven balconies and crystal-paned oriels, all gleamed with a somber and polished loveliness, and now and then a plaza would open out with black pillars, colonnades, and the statues of curious beings, both human and fabulous. Some of the vistas, down long and unbending streets, or through side alleys and over bulbous domes, spires, and arabesque roofs, were weird and beautiful beyond words, and nothing was more splendid than the massive height of the great central temple of the Elder Ones, with its sixteen carven sides, its flattened dome, and its lofty pinnacled belfry, overtopping all else, and majestic whatever its foreground. And always to the east, far beyond the city walls and the leagues of pastureland, rose the gaunt gray sides of those topless and impassable peaks across which hideous Lang was said to lie. The captain took Carter to the mighty temple, which is set with its walled garden in a great round plaza whence the streets go as spokes from a wheel's hub. The seven arched gates of that garden, each having over it a carven face like those on the city's gates, are always open, and the people roam reverently at will down the tiled paths and through the little lanes lined with grotesque termini and the shrines of modest gods. And there are fountains, pools, and basins there to reflect the frequent blaze of the tripods on the high balcony, 
all of onyx, and having in them small luminous fish taken by divers from the lower bowers of ocean. When the deep clang from the temple's belfry shivers over the garden and the city, and the answer of the horns and veals and voices peals out from the seven lodges by the garden gates, there issue from the seven doors of the temple long columns of masked and hooded priests in black, bearing at arm's length before them great golden bowls from which a curious steam arises. And all the seven columns strut peculiarly in single file, legs thrown far forward without bending the knees, down the walks that lead to the seven lodges wherein they disappear and do not appear again. It is said that subterranean paths connect the lodges with the temple, and that the long files of priests return through them, nor is it unwhispered that deep flights of onyx steps go down to mysteries that are never told. But only a few are those who hint that the priests in the masked and hooded columns are not human priests. Carter did not enter the temple because none but the veiled king is permitted to do that. But before he left the garden, the hour of the bell came, and he heard the shivering clang deafeningly above him, and the wailing of the horns and veals and voices loud from the lodges by the gates. And down the seven great walks stalked the long files of bull-bearing priests in their singular way, giving to the traveler a fear which human priests do not often give. When the last of them had vanished, he left that garden, noting as he did so a spot on the pavement over which the bulls had passed. Even the ship captain did not like that spot, and hurried him on toward the hill whereon the veiled king's palaces rise many domed and marvelous. The ways to the onyx palace are steep and narrow, all but that broad curving one where the king and his companions ride on yaks or in yak-drawn chariots. Carter and his guide climbed up an alley that was all steps between inlaid walls bearing strange signs in gold, and under balconies and oriels whence sometimes floated soft strains of music or breaths of exotic fragrance. Always ahead loomed those titan walls, mighty buttresses, and clustered and bulbous domes for which the veiled king's palace is famous, and at length they passed under a great black arch and emerged in the gardens of the monarch's pleasure. There Carter paused in faintness at so much of beauty, for the onyx terraces and colonnaded walks, the gay parterres and delicate flowering trees and espaliered to golden lattices, the brazen urns and tripods with cunning bas-reliefs, the pedestaled and almost breathing statues of veined black marvel, the basalt-bottomed lagoons and tiled fountains with luminous fish, the tiny temples of iridescent singing birds atop carven columns, the marvelous scrollwork of the great bronze gates and the blossoming vines trained along every inch of the polished walls all joined to form a site whose loveliness was beyond reality and half-fabulous even in the land of dream. There it shimmered like a vision under that gray twilight sky, with the domed and fretted magnificence of the palace ahead and the fantastic silhouette of the distant, impassable peaks on the right. And ever the small birds and the fountains sang, while the perfume of rare blossoms spread like a veil over that incredible garden. No other human presence was there, and Carter was glad it was so. Then they turned and descended again the onyx alley of steps, for the palace itself no visitor may enter, and it is not well to look too long and steadily at the great central dome since it is said to house the archaic father of all the rumored Shantak birds, 
and to send out queer dreams to the curious. After that, the captain took Carter to the north quarter of the town, near the gate of the caravans where are the taverns of the yak merchants and the onyx miners. And there, in a low-ceilinged inn of quarrymen, they said farewell, for business called the captain whilst Carter was eager to talk with miners about the north. There were many men in that inn, and the traveller was not long in speaking to some of them, saying that he was an old miner of onyx and anxious to know somewhat of Inganic's quarries. But all that he learnt was not much more than he knew before, for the miners were timid and evasive about the cold desert to the north and the quarry that no man visits. They had fears of fabled emissaries from around the mountains, where Lang is said to lie, and of evil presences and nameless sentinels far north among the scattered rocks. And they whispered also that the rumored Shantak birds are no wholesome things, it being indeed for the best that no man had ever truly seen one, for that fabled father of Shantaks in the king's dome is fed in the dark. The next day, saying that he wished to look over all the various mines for himself and to visit the scattered farms and quaint onyx villages of Enganic, Carter hired a yak and stuffed great leathern saddlebags for a journey. Beyond the gate of the caravans, the road lay straight betwixt tilled fields with many odd farmhouses crowned by low domes. At some of these houses, the seeker stopped to ask questions, once finding a host so austere and reticent and so full of an unplaced majesty like to that in the huge features on in Granic, that he felt certain he had come at last upon one of the great ones themselves, or upon one with full nine-tenths of their blood dwelling amongst men. And to that austere and recent cotter he was careful to speak very well of the gods and to praise all the blessings they had ever accorded him. That night Carter camped in a roadside meadow beneath a great ligath tree to which he tied his yak, and in the morning resumed his northward pilgrimage. At about ten o'clock he reached the small domed village of Urg, where traders rest and miners tell their tales, and paused in its taverns till noon. It is here that the great caravan road turns west towards Salarn, but Carter kept on north by the quarry road. All the afternoon he followed that rising road, which was somewhat narrower than the great highway, and which now led through a region with more rocks than tilled fields, and by evening the low hills on his left had risen into sizable black cliffs, so that he knew he was close to the mining country. All the while the great gaunt sides of the impassable mountains towered afar off at his right, and the farther he went the worst tales he heard of them from the scattered farmers and traders and drivers of lumbering onyx carts along the way. On the second night he camped in the shadow of a large black crag, tethering his yak to a stake driven into the ground. He observed the greater phosphorescence of the clouds at this northerly point, and more than once thought he saw dark shapes outlined against them. And on the third morning he came in sight of the first onyx quarry, and greeted the men who there labored with picks and chisels. Before evening he had passed eleven quarries, the land being here given over altogether to onyx cliffs and borders with no vegetation at all, but with the gray impassable peaks always rising gaunt and sinister on his right. The third night he spent in a camp of quarrymen whose flickering fires cast weird reflections on the polished cliffs to the west, and they sang many songs and told many tales, showing such strange knowledge of the olden days and the habits of gods 
that Carter could see they held many latent memories of their sires, the Great Ones. They asked him whither he went, and cautioned him not to go too far to the north, but he replied that he was seeking new cliffs of onyx, and would take no more risks than were common among prospectors. In the morning he bade them adieu, and rode on into the darkening north, where they had warned him he would find the feared and unvisited quarry whence hands older than men's hands had wrenched prodigious blocks. But he did not like it when, turning back to wave a last farewell, he thought he saw approaching the camp that squat and evasive old merchant with slanting eyes whose conjectured traffic with Lang was the gossip of distant Dilathleen. And that is the end of this part of the story. There's a slim chance we might wrap it up next week, but it's more than likely going to be the week after that. And then we've got Pride Month and the story that will be presented there. I've got a great slate of readers, and I'm really looking forward to bringing you the story. It'll be on the weekends, one episode on Saturday, one episode on Sunday throughout the month, so you get double the episodes, and I don't appear in any of them. You're welcome. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, you can kick into the Patreon. It goes towards hosting fees and guest readers and repair and upkeep of the Bugatti Lavatoire Noir my wife and I take when we go cruising on weekends. Thank you to Eric Braun, Elisa Maya, and Joe Escott for your support. Please go and get vaccinated if you still haven't. Like, seriously, what are you waiting for? Get any and all boosters available to you and continue wearing a mask. Punch a racist in the face and always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening and have a good week. Many times the moon hears strange music as it shines softly in the night. Many times, nope. Many times the moon hears strange music as it's... <sighs> this is going really great so far. But bided his time till he might talk with those strange men from cold and twilight and Gannic, who are the seeds of such gods as carve their features on in Granic. <laughs> it's just, why do we got to have names like that, Howie? Like, why do we got to do that, buddy? There, Carter paused in faintness at so much of beauty, for the onyx terraces and colonnaded walks, the gay parterres and delicate flowering trees and espaliered to golden lattices, the brazen urns and tripods with cunning bas-reliefs, the pedestaled and almost breathing statues of veined black marvel, the basalt-bottomed lagoons and tiled fountains with luminous fish, the tiny temples of iridescent singing birds atop carven columns, the marvelous scrollwork of the great bronze gates and the blossoming vines trained along every inch of the polished walls, all joined to form a site whose loveliness was beyond reality and half-fabulous, even in the land of dream. And if you can remember where that sentence began, you are a far better person than I am.